Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you all so much, all of you, all around the world. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Okay, so I kind of have a story to tell you guys. I, When I was 15 years old, I was a sophomore in high school, and I had to do a project on someone I looked up to, someone who I just was really passionate about, someone who I thought, oh my goodness, I would love to follow in their footsteps, and that person was Diane Fossey. And I will tell you what, it was the hardest project I ever had to do, because I remember we had to do note cards and, you know, cite references, and I remember this is the first time as a young adult, I guess, or a teenager, I guess, uh, that I had to, you know, you know, do that type of thing, and I just was obsessed with Diane Fossey for so long, and, you know, growing up, I always, you know, and as you know, if you listen to the podcast, I have an animal bucket list, and seeing wild mountain gorillas is at the, I would say, like, the very, very top of my animal bucket list, and so, I just have always been fascinated with Diane Fossey, her work, and seeing wild mountain gorillas. And I am so excited about today's podcast because I have the CEO and chief scientist of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, okay? Um, I This is just so cool. I, I was so excited to interview Dr. Tara Stowinski. She's been with the organization for 17 years, and this is... I love it because, I mean, 17 years of working with wild mountain gorillas, I mean, are you kidding me? What a dream job. And it's so funny, and you'll hear this when I ask her, I say, I mean, oh my goodness, like, you have a dream job. She said, yes, there's like nothing else I would want to do in life. She is just living her dream. I love it. We talk about how she got there. We talk about the gorillas. We also talk about Diane Fossey. Um, you know, I, I I had a lot of questions about her. I mean, she was so iconic. Unfortunately, she was murdered. And so there are questions that, you know, still need to be asked. And so we, you know, we, we go into that. But we definitely talk about, of course, the most important part, which are the gorillas and the conservation efforts that are going on right now to protect them. There are only a thousand, that's right, 1,000 mountain gorillas left in the wild, which actually has gone up which is crazy. When Diane Fossey started, you'll hear there was only like, there were less than 300 left. So they are going up, but we just talk about, uh, you know, the work that they're doing. And I had such a great time. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm about to book my ticket to Rwanda. I'm serious. I'm looking at my map right now. I'm like, okay, you know, trying to save my pennies. But uh, you'll definitely enjoy this interview. Now, before we get to it, make sure, as always, if you haven't, please rate the show. Um, you know, tell a friend. You can write us a review. We actually got a few new reviews, so thank you so much on iTunes. And this is so cool. I finally figured out how to get the podcast on YouTube which, okay, I know you guys are probably like, well, Corbin, that's so easy. But for me, I'm like more into animals. I'm really not into technology. So it really was a lot. So I figured out how to get it on YouTube and it's available there. So share with your friends. With that said, I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Tara Stowinski. Thank you so much for doing this. I am so excited. My wife and I watched Gorillas in the Mist last night, and I have a million oh, questions. Awesome. <laughs> I have a million questions for you. Great. You have a dream job. Where do we begin? 
Yeah, I do. I really do have my dream job. In fact, my 10-year-old daughter asked me the other day, you know, Mom, if you could have any job in the world, what would it be? And I thought about it and I said, well, this job, I don't really want any other job. And she said, come on, Mom, if you could travel anywhere or make any amount of money. And I said, no, really, I have the dream job. I have the perfect job. So I agree with you 100%. So was it always mountain gorillas or primates in general or animals? Like, how do you, I mean, because, I mean, <laughs> you have a very, you know, a great position at one of the world's most, you know, recognizable conservation organizations in the world. Yeah, so it's a good question. And for me, it was animals. I really started in the animal realm when I was young. I had lots of animals and I wanted to be a vet and I thought I was going to be a vet all through college. In fact, I even applied to vet school after college and was accepted and deferred uh, for a year to go do my master's in biology in England. And when I finished up, I had a couple months before I was due back in the States. And I said, well, I've always wanted to go to Africa. Uh, and so I went and I volunteered on a PhD students project studying jackals in Zimbabwe. And I just really fell in love. I fell in love with the work. I fell in love with Zimbabwe and the people that I met there and so decided to switch my focus from veterinary medicine to studying behavior and uh, with a real interest in conservation and so came back and did my PhD and I kind of lucked into gorillas to be honest because I was doing my PhD here in Atlanta which has a really large um, gorilla collection at its zoo and also it's where the headquarters of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund is and I, I knew I wanted to work with primates and I wanted to work in Africa and so was very lucky to have this opportunity to start working with the Fossey Fund and I've now been with the organization for 17 years. Wow. Okay. Can we go back? Because wait, you completely sparked my interest. You said you worked with jackals in Zimbabwe? Yes. What okay? How, what what were you doing? What what were you studying? I was actually on the ecology side, so we were trying to figure out how many jackals lived in the area. You know what their ranges were, how much they interacted, how far they would disperse when you know they reached adulthood. And so I always say that you know I went to Africa very naive. I didn't realize how cold it can be, particularly if you're in southern Africa in their winter. And we were totally nocturnal because the jackals were nocturnal. So they were radio collared. I never really saw a jackal. We just listened to these little beeps that moved around in the landscape. Um, got very chilly over the course of the night, but I loved it. And so to get to switch from that to these big diurnal primates that are, you know, you get to watch and observe and see their behavior has been a huge, uh, you know, treat for me, obviously. Oh, okay. So, I mean, were you... Okay, so you go from jackals to these beautiful mountain gorillas. Were you yeah. were you always interested in Diane Fossey? Did her work inspire you at all? Were you a fan? Sure. I mean, I think as a as a woman interested in science and loving animals, people like Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall certainly were were individuals that I looked up to as I was growing up. Um, and was very inspired by what these courageous, really pioneering women did to to study these animals in the wild. And, you know, in Diane's situation, she went, she didn't really have a background in science. Um, at the time, gorillas, the, the common perception of gorillas were King Kong and ferocious beast. And, you know, she really changed the world's idea of what gorillas were. And we now know them as family-oriented, gentle giants, and to see the impact that this one person could make, um, not just in changing attitude, but then in conservation as well. And I, I think 
the fact that they have been so successfully conserved is in part because people's attitudes about them changed and they really fell in love with them. And that made that spurred people to want to support the work that she did and to get involved in guerrilla conservation. Um, whereas, you know, some other, for lack of a better word, less glamorous species have a harder time getting kind of a massive public support behind them. But that's the great thing about gorillas is that they can be an incredible umbrella species for the ecosystems in which they live. And so by protecting gorillas, you protect a whole host of other animals and plants, etc. And they were in trouble when she started her work, correct, in the early 60s? Is that when she started? She started in 1967 in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And they were in trouble, correct? What was the gorilla population looking like in 1967 when Diane Fossey went for her first time? Yeah, so there have been been some censuses that have been done earlier by George Schaller that suggested, you know, over 400 individuals. And when Diane started doing her census work, you know, it was really apparent that the the population had crashed. And she could see it happening around her. You know, a number of the individuals that she got to know and studied were killed by poachers. You know, there was a big trade in souvenirs at that time. So people thought gorilla hands would make a great ashtray or a head would be good on a mantle. There was also killing of gorillas to capture babies for the illegal pet trade. And so the population got down to a low of about 240, 250 individuals. So, yeah, I mean, it was thought that they would be extinct before the end of the century. So before the year 2000. I mean, as a scientist, so isn't that scary just when you look at the genetics of the species? I mean, couldn't there be some type of like a bottleneck effect? Definitely, definitely. And when we we have done genetic work with our collaborators, and it does show that there is a lot of inbreeding um, in this population, that they, you know, they don't have the genetic diversity that you see in other types of gorillas found in Africa. Okay. So there are, okay, so so roughly when she started around 240 gorillas, uh, Uh how many gorillas, mountain gorillas do we have today? So in this region where she worked, where they were down to 240, um, the, the latest census was just released earlier this year, or actually, I guess last year now, it was released in the summer of 2018, and it showed 604 mountain gorillas. Wow. So, you know, not quite, but almost tripled over the last 30 years. Uh, there's another population in a, in a separate park in Uganda that has roughly 400 individuals, so it brings the total for the subspecies to 1,000. Um, but they're really, those, those two populations can't interbreed. They're separated by um, the forest has been cut down. So really we have a, a population of 604 and a population of 400 left on the planet. And that's it. Oh my gosh, that's it. Okay. Yep. Um, yep. And really quick for, for, for my listeners, a lot of them, of course, have never been to Africa. The gorillas they see in zoos are not the mountain gorillas. Can we talk about the, the, the lowland gorillas, correct? Sure. Sure, yeah. A lot of people don't realize there are actually four types of gorillas. Two are found in kind of eastern central Africa. That's the mountain gorilla and the growers gorilla. And then two are found in western Africa, and that's the western lowland and the cross river gorilla. And of those four types, only one is found in captivity, and that's the western lowland gorilla. The other three types are only found in the wild. Um, And the western lowland gorilla, luckily, is the most numerous of all of them. There's about 350,000, we think, of them left, which is fabulous news. Um, they are considered critically endangered because they are their populations are declining rapidly from disease and habitat loss and poaching. But at least with that kind of number, we have a little bit more wiggle room and time before we get to the critical situation that we see for the other three types of gorillas, where combined across all three of them, we have maybe 5,000 left. Wow. 
Okay. Do people actually go and see the Western Lowland Gorillas? Like, I never hear of people going on safari to see them. I only hear about the mountain gorillas. Yeah, they do. There they are do. several. Oh, okay. There, there are several sites where they are habituated, and you can go see them. It's more challenging um, because they're just in remoter areas, so it's a lot more travel to get to them. But yes, there is tourism that can happen. But certainly, I think the majority of it is focused on mountain gorillas, and in in Rwanda, Uganda, and in Congo as well. And this is just out of complete curiosity. And if you don't know it, I mean, that's completely fine. But did they try to, to, you know, raise mountain gorillas in captivity and it just didn't work? Did they, the species, it just didn't work out? Is that why? Or how, how did that work out? Yeah, so I they, there were a few mountain gorillas that ended up in captivity, and yeah, they are very folivorous, so they eat basically, you know, only plant material, not really even fruits, and folivorous animals sometimes can be harder to be kept in captivity. This was in the 70s, you know, gorillas haven't been taken out of the wild since, since the mid-1980s, um, but I think... So the diet proved hard and they didn't survive very long. And then, you know, seeing what was happening to them, zoos, reputable zoos, didn't want to be any part of decreasing the numbers anymore. And so they didn't take take mountain gorillas out. Okay. So let's go back. I'm sorry, I kind of, kind of side-skirted there. Uh, yeah. So you are studying jackals in Zimbabwe. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. You, you end up, I mean, can we talk about your first gorilla encounter? Sure, sure. I should add that in between jackals in Zimbabwe, I did my actual PhD on um, a small primate from Brazil, so called golden lion tamarins, which were oh. also critically endangered, um, and are, are actually also uh, improving in number in large part to the concerted conservation efforts. So I spent some time in Brazil when I was working on my PhD, but always kept my love for Africa and kept going back to Africa. I taught classes there, study abroad programs. And then was lucky enough, after I had been working with gorillas for about eight years, to get to go start studying them in the wild. Wow. Okay, so you worked with them, so you observed them in captivity at Zoo, yes. at, at, at Zoo Atlanta? Yes, yes. What, yes. what exactly were you looking, like, what, what were you looking for? In the zoo setting? Yes. Yeah, so we, I did a lot of different studies. I mean, the interesting thing about... Um, you know, having gorillas in a zoo is that there are things you can study there that you can't study in the wild. So you can study cognitive abilities. Um, you can, uh, you know, it's hard to study feeding ecology, for example, because, um, you know, the gorillas are not eating a natural wild diet. But there's elements that you can see and understand about them that you may, that's very difficult, can be very difficult to study in a wild population. What's really unique about the gorillas that Diane first started studying is that they are monitored every single day. So so we know so much about these individuals, uh, you know, every animal they've lived with, who the mom is. Through genetic work, we know who the dad is, you know, who their friends are, who their enemies are. So it's an incredibly robust data set. I mean, this this is the world's longest running gorilla research site, wild gorilla research site. So the amount of information we have is, is really considerable. Mm-hmm. Wow. So just, okay, so just talk about that. Because I'll tell you what, on my bucket list is to go to Rwanda and see wild mountain gorillas. I mean, I can't even imagine. I get chills thinking about it. Talk about your first experience seeing wild mountain gorillas. Yeah, and it should definitely be on your bucket list because it's amazing. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I was really interested in male gorillas. That's my particular, you know, area of focus. And um, 
I went, uh, I was interested in their reproductive strategies and the decisions they make across the course of their life. Some males choose to stay in the group they were born in and try and inherit dominance. Other males strike out on their own and try and form their own groups. So I was interested in all of these, these cool dynamics. And the mountain gorillas are pretty unique among gorillas in that males can live in a group together with females. When you look at the other three types of gorillas, generally you'll just have one adult male females and their kids. But in mountain gorillas, we have lots of, of groups with multiple males. And so that was where my interest was, you know, was really um, in terms of research. So my first visit, I went to see Shinda's group, which at the time had eight adult males in it, wow. which is, you know, was kind of heard of in Diane Fossey's time. It was a, it was a group with, it had eight females and eight males. So kind of an equal sex ratio, which is pretty unusual for gorillas. And, you know, all of the gorillas have their own individual personalities. And Shinda, who was the leader of the group, let's just say he was not the nicest and friendliest of all of the silverbacks. Um, we had another group that was run by this male named Titus, who was just like a teddy bear. Very sweet, very gentle. And you could just sense that in, his, in, the, in the demeanor of the group. Everyone was very relaxed. Shinda's group, maybe because he had so many males living in it, he was a little bit more uh, on edge. And when I showed up, he clearly recognized that I was a new face that he hadn't seen before. And so he charged me. <gasps> and um, I did, you know, exactly what you're supposed to do. I, I bent down and got low and was submissive. And as I'm sitting there, I could, I had my hair up in a ponytail. And I could literally feel the hairs on the back of my neck kind of moving as he was smelling me. And the guys are watching and they said, Tara, don't worry, don't worry, he's just smelling you. But when you've got a 400 pound male, you know, with his mouth near your spinal column, a mouth that can, you know, crack a co coconut open with no problem, it's a little disconcerting. Um, but he recognized that I wasn't a threat, kind of put me in my place and moved on. And that was my, my first introduction to gorillas. Um, Luckily, it didn't scare me away. And, and, you know, he obviously didn't hurt me in any way. He just really intimidated me and kind of put me in my place and um, engendered the respect that I knew I was going to have to give that I brought to the table, but knew I was going to have to give to the gorillas moving forward. I would have been terrified. Was it hard to be professional? Like, hey, you guys, I'm the scientist. And I would have been like, oh, yeah. my, like, was it? I mean, were you just I mean, your adrenaline probably was just in just going like crazy. Definitely. I mean, when you're there in the moment, you're just kind of, you know, waiting for it to be over. But then after he left, I could feel how much the adrenaline, you know, you had that like exhaustion you get when your adrenaline's been pumping. So, um, yeah, it was it was an amazing experience. One I never will never forget. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, and he did that full on charge. I mean, the full. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, again, um, um, yeah, it was it was intimidating, to say the least. Yeah, but they've never really have they ever harmed anybody before? Any tourists or researchers before? Yeah, it's rare. I mean, you know, again, they are wild animals. Even though they're accustomed to human presence, they haven't been domesticated in any way. They're wild animals, and and occasionally someone can get injured. Um, I've I've not heard of tourists getting injured, but you know, we'll have a situation. The vegetation's really dense. So someone might turn a corner and not realize a gorilla is there and startle them. And so they might just, you know, kind of lash out and push. Someone might get knocked over. But certainly, um, you know, they're they're very gentle and, and they know that people, you know, they recognize these people. They know they're not there to harm them. We do a lot of vocalizations when we're with them to let them know we're around, um, to avoid situations like I just mentioned where you're in deep brush and you surprise them. So a lot of times we'll walk around doing kind of 
contact calls to let them know that we're in the vicinity and they should be on, you know, not be surprised if we turn a corner. Okay. I Can I please hear a vocalization call? Can I hear one, please? Sure, sure. Okay, okay go ahead. Yeah, so the, the most common one that you do is just, uh, it goes, <clears throat> <clears throat> kind of like you're clearing your throat. <clears throat> like this? And, yeah. <clears throat> it's like two beats. <clears throat> um, and that's just, a, they'll do that a lot when they're sleeping to, you know, call out to other individuals if the group's kind of spread out when they're sleeping. It's just, a, I'm over here, I'm over here, you know, I'm coming your way type type of call. Okay. Is there another one that you can so, do? So, yeah, so... So another one is called a pig grunt, and um, it goes, <coughs> and that's kind of a mildly annoyed vocalization. So you might hear that if, like, the silverback's feeding and someone starts to approach him and gets too close to his prime feeding area, then he might just, it's just a sm- small warning, and usually it results in that individual kind of walking the other way. They've been, they've been given fair warning. Okay. So you've been doing this for many years. You said you've been with this organization for 17 years, correct? Yeah. Yes. Wow. Okay. How many gorilla encounters do you think you've had over those 17 years? Like how many times have you been up with the gorillas? Oh, gosh. I don't know. (laughs) Off the top of my head. Um, not probably not hundreds, um, okay. but a lot. Yeah. And, you know, about four years ago, I transitioned from my scientific role into being CEO. So while I still do a lot of science with our team, it, I'm not watching gorillas directly the way that I used to, you know, when I was a, a full time scientist. So I get less time with them now. But, you know, I, I view that as a necessary evil to be raising the money to make sure that our teams on the ground can be with them every day and protecting them and studying them and doing all of the work that we do, um, you know, to, to help ensure a future for these animals. Okay. So seeing mountain gorillas, of course, it's on a lot of people's bucket lists, of course. Mm-hmm. It brings in millions of dollars, right, for the local economy. What is that number? Yeah. Do you know off the top of your head? I don't know off the top of my head um, what it is. You know, the, the tourism is all run through the Rwandan government, um, but you're exactly right. It's a major source. In fact, it's often cited as the number one source of foreign currency for the country of Rwanda, which is a very small country. doesn't have an incredible diversity of industries or a diversified economy. So it's a really important part of the country's economy. Um, in addition, the money that comes in to see the gorillas, you know, helps support the conservation, not just of the park where the gorillas live, but the other three national parks that exist in Rwanda. And on top of that, 10% of the, the permits that people, the permit fees that people pay are shared with local communities to help advance um, their well-being. So it really contributes in a lot of different ways to the, to the overall well-being of the country of Rwanda. Okay, so can we just talk about, I, I, I just want to know, because I'm from Idaho, I've never been, uh-huh. I, I've actually been to Africa twice, so I've, I've been to Kenya, I've, I've done the whole Maasai Mara thing, but uh-huh. Rwanda's like, it is on the top of my list. What is the experience like? I mean, is it, I mean, is it safe flying in there? Because I know a lot of my listeners are like, you know, some of them are scared of Africa, <laughs> they have yeah. like these, you know what I mean, this idea yeah. of like a blood yeah. diamond type of an atmosphere. So right. what is it like? I mean, take me through, I mean, is it safe? Yeah. What, yeah. Oh, it's, so I think I think one of the things that people are most surprised by is Rwanda is considered the second safest country in Africa. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's incredibly safe. Um, 
So, and really good infrastructure you fly in and the gorillas are about two and a half hours from the capital. The roads are all extremely well maintained. You know, the country has outlawed plastic bags. So what? you drive, I've, yeah, I've never been in a cleaner country. You drive through Rwanda and you do not see a piece of trash anywhere. Um, it's immaculate. Um, um, every, on the last Saturday of the month, the entire country does community service. So for the morning, um, the country goes out and they do priority projects in their communities, whether it be painting a school or digging a ditch to lay you know, pipes for water or cleaning a strip of road, et cetera. So um, incredibly clean, incredibly safe um, country that's very easy to get around. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's wonderful. I, I highly, highly recommend it. I think what I have found, um, obviously people come with us to see the gorillas, and that's where their first interest is, but they leave falling in love with Rwanda, uh, the country, and its people. Um, I, you know, it's, it, 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 it's transformational for people, especially knowing Rwanda's history that 25 years ago it had an incredibly horrific genocide um, where it lost a significant part of its population. And so it's been recovering from that over this time period and also done all of these amazing advances in the, in its con- in the country on top of that. That's excellent to know because I, I told you before we uh, started uh, recording this interview, my wife and I were watching Gorillas in the Mist, you know, and, and she flies into this grass hut and there's people with machetes. Yeah. My wife's like, oh, my God, like, I don't know. I was like, it's probably not like that anymore, babe. <laughs> It is still like that in the countryside. I mean, I think that when you, if you drive around the park um, where the gorillas are, you know, it's one of the highest human population densities in Africa. You're looking at 800 to 1,000 people per square kilometer, which translates to, you know, 12 to 1,500 people per square mile. Um, And they are living, you know, subsistence agriculture. So still working their fields to grow crops and that's how they make money. So I would say a lot of that right around the park actually hasn't changed. Um, But when you get into the cities, you know, Kigali is a thriving city with, you know, convention centers and beautiful hotels and restaurants. Um, You know, it's similar to the states. You've got a lot of infrastructure development in the cities and the rural areas still are, you know, still are working on that. Yeah, where I live. I live in a very tiny town. (laughs) So, okay, so the gorillas are two and a half hours away. From what I've heard from other podcast guests who've been on, who have, you know, have done these expeditions, don't you have to be really physically fit to go see them? Aren't they, like, really, really deep in in the jungle, I guess, per se? Yeah, Uh, it depends. So, you know, they live across the park, which is about 167 square miles. So it's tiny. The park is tiny. Um, And it just depends on where you are in the park. Some places it can be really steep. Some places it can be a little bit flatter. But you're generally starting at about 6,500 or 7,000 feet. So it is higher altitude. So just, you know, there's less oxygen. So that can make it a challenge. Um, And then depending on where the gorillas are, you can have sometimes a relatively easy hike sometimes a relatively hard hike. If the gorillas are moving, your hike might be longer than you anticipate. So it just depends. Okay. So I hear when you go, I mean, first of all, how much does it cost? Can I ask that? I mean, Mm -hmm. can you give me some relative ballpark of how much it costs to go see the gorillas in Rwanda? Yeah. So a permit is $1,500 per person. Yep. And that's for a one hour visit. Um, the really nice thing if for people that might've been on safari in Kenya and Tanzania, where you just, you know, a lot of times you'll have a pride of lions and there'll be lots of vehicles that come around and you're kind of jockeying for view, et cetera. Um, each gorilla family is only visited once a day by a maximum of eight tourists for one hour. So it's a very, in, um, intimate 
experience that's that's meant to minimize the impact on the gorillas themselves. So it's fifteen hundred dollars. Does that include? Mm-hmm. That's just that's just for the that's just for the permit. That doesn't include <laughs> your lodging or anything like that. Yep. Nope. That is just the permit. And um, again, that helps support the conservation of the park uh, where the gorillas are, as well as the other parks that are in Rwanda. And also a portion of that is shared with local communities to help improve their lives as well. So, you know, the money is really well used and distributed throughout the, the various stakeholders. Okay. So what happens if, for instance, like I went to Africa, I was wanting to see a leopard so bad. I was obsessed with trying to find a leopard. I didn't find it. Have you ever had a group pay the $1,500 and not see a group of gorillas? I have not, no. It's extremely, extremely rare. Um, oh. So, you know, these animals are, there's an advanced team that goes out before the tourists that, you know, locates where the gorillas had slept the night before and then figures out where they've moved to so they can radio down. And so when you come up with your guide, they pretty much can take you on a direct um, direct beeline to where the gorillas are at that point in time. So it's, it's you're, I can't say 100, 100%. But I, I don't know of anyone that has not seen the gorillas. Oh, good. Okay, that's great to know. Yeah. So yeah. you just mentioned you just got back from Rwanda. Yes. So what were you doing since you're, I mean, were you out there in the field with the gorillas or mingling with the locals? Tell me, what is your schedule like when you head back there as the chief scientist of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund? Yeah, so, you know, we are, a, we're a big team in, in Africa. We have 190 staff. In Africa, 130 are in um, Rwanda working on mountain gorilla conservation. And then we have another 60 that are in eastern Congo. And there we're protecting the Grower's gorilla, which is the other subspecies of gorilla that's found in this part of Africa. And so when I go over, it's a lot of meetings with the teams, you know, to talk about our activities, how things are going, you know, thinking of new strategic directions in which we want to head, Etc. So we kind of operate in both countries around four pillars. We do, you know, four four main things. One is direct protection of gorilla gorilla families, and we do that both in Rwanda and Congo. Um, we do scientific research. So as I mentioned, we're the longest running gorilla research site in the world, and a lot of what people know about gorillas has come out of work done through the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. Um, but we don't just study gorillas; we also study the larger biodiversity of the region which is really unique. So part of the reason we study the larger biodiversity is because for gorillas to thrive, they need to live in a thriving ecosystem. And one of the things that we've learned about them is they're not really good canaries in the coal mine for the overall health of their ecosystem. Because they're so smart and their diet is really diversified, they're really flexible. And so better species for us to be looking at are things like birds and amphibians and certain plant species, which are better indicators of the overall health of the environment. So our science doesn't just focus only on gorillas, but it also focuses on the biodiversity of the region. Um, And then our two other pillars are really much more our people side of things. So our motto is helping people saving gorillas, because we know for gorillas to thrive, the people have to thrive too. Um, So on the people side of the equation, we have a big program around training the next generation of conservationists in Africa and beyond. So we do a lot of work with local universities in Rwanda and Congo to bring young aspiring biologists out into the field to teach them, you know, how do you do an amphibian census? How do you count, uh, you know, bird populations? 
And that's a big part of the work that we do, um, you know, in the countries where we work. And then the last piece is around helping local communities. So doing livelihood, food and water security, education programming for these populations that live near or with the gorillas so that they better understand the value of these of these incredible animals and also that their lives are improved um, by, by living near them. So when I'm there, I'm working on all four of these of these aspects. But of you know, my favorite is I always love going back to the science because that's where I started. And uh, there's just lots of every day. I feel like the gorillas are surprising us with new scientific, you know, um, surprises. So we're always learning something. Yeah, what is something you've learned, like something really interesting that you've learned from watching these gorillas? Um, well, just in the last year, we had a, a really fun publication that came out that showed that um, males, young males, if they invest a lot, and so it's really common to see kind of males babysitting infants. So you'll see a male, and you know these are 400-pound individuals with a bunch of one-year-olds around them. And the mom's off feeding somewhere. So she feels obviously very comfortable that her infant is protected by being with these males. And we found that um, that males that invest in, in interacting with kids, these kids aren't their own, um, but just interacting with kids when they're young are five times more likely to be able to then have to reproduce as adults. So there's a really good strategy if you're a young male to try and find some kids and spend some time with them. Um, because it's more likely than that when you grow up, you'll be able to have some kids of your own. Because a lot of males never get to breed. Um, oh, oh. Yeah, a lot of males strike out on their own and are never successful in forming a group and pr- reproducing. So um, it's really interesting to see that there can be a strategy that you can start even before you're fully grown that'll help you be more successful um, reproductively as an adult. Will they um, create like bachelor groups? Yeah, um, back in the time of Diane Fossey, there were actually several bachelor groups that were studied. We have not seen bachelor groups in quite some time. It's interesting. We wonder why they don't do it. We think that they would be, so the, the strategy that male gorillas will take is if they strike out on their own, they'll interact with a group and try and steal females, basically, from another group. And we feel like they would be more successful if maybe, you know, two or three of them work together to try and steal females and doing it on their own. But they, that doesn't seem to be a common strategy. We don't really see that. We see that they're really, you know, strike out on their own. And that seems to be the main mechanism that males will use for trying to trying to form their own group. Um, but certainly at some points in time, there have been bachelor groups living in the park. But right now we don't have any that we're monitoring. Okay. Is poaching still an issue for for you in the gorillas? It really depends on where you are. So for mountain gorillas, they are not poached um, directly, but unfortunately people still set snares in the forest for other animals. So a lot of times for antelope and the gorillas can get caught in the snares. So poaching is an indirect threat to them, definitely. And that's one of the reasons why we're in the forest 365 days a year. We check on every gorilla that we help um, to monitor and protect. And if a gorilla is missing, we'll go look for it because it could be sick, um, it could have fallen behind for some reason, or it could be caught in the snare. And uh, we want to make sure that that animal is is safe and protected. Um, in Congo, where we work, poaching is actually, direct poaching of gorillas is the number one cause of decline. Mm. And unlike mountain gorillas that have been increasing, although slowly over the last 30 years, we have lost 80% of the world's remaining growers gorillas in the last 20 years. Um, vast majority of that from direct hunting. 
So again, you know, when you talk about poaching, it really depends on what part of Africa you're working in. Mountain gorillas, direct poaching isn't a threat, but for all the other types, it, it is. Is this just for bush meat? Are they also still selling their parts, like their hands as ashtrays or their heads? Is it just bush meat now? It's really, it's really primarily for bush meat. Um, yes. So there's a sort of off market for, for the infants that they might try and trade them, but you know, cause the infants are tiny, so there's not much meat there. So they may try and sell them, but really the majority of it is for direct hunting for food. Okay. What is the lifespan of a mountain gorilla? That's a great question. So we've been on the ground now for 52 years and, you know, we only have a handful of gorillas that we feel like, you know, we saw them the day they were born and we saw them the day they died of old age. So, I mean, we've had lots of animals that we've watched over time, but, um, you know, that, that just shows when you have a long lived species, how long you have to observe them to really start to get an idea of lifespan. But the oldest male that we have had live was Cantsby and he lived to be 38. Um, now, there are some other gorillas in the park that are estimated to be older than that, but I, their exact birth date isn't known. So when you encounter a gorilla and, you, and the first time you're seeing it, it's a juvenile, you may say, oh, I think it's two or I think it's four. So there's a margin of error there. With Cantsby, we know, you know the day he was born and the day he died as well. So we know he was a 38-year-old individual. Females can live a little bit longer into their early 40s. Oh, wow. I thought they could live maybe closer to human lifespans. I didn't realize it was 38, 40. That's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. In, in a captive setting in zoos, there are gorillas that have lived to, into their mid to late 50s. But, you know, life in the wild is hard. Uh, you know, you've got to find food. You've got to find mates. You're competing with other gorillas. And particularly for males, there's a you know, can be a lot of fighting over access to females. So uh, it seems to definitely take a, take a, a toll and their lifespan is shorter. Do you know the infant mortality rate by chance? I do. Um, and again, one of the things that we've learned over time is that, you know, all of these things vary because gorillas live in a larger environment where things are happening. So back when Diane was there, infant mortality was, you know, was quite high. And a lot of that was all the social disruption from the poaching. So if you kill a silverback, for example, uh, and there's no other male in the group to inherit that group, the group will disband, and when a female who has an infant moves to another group uh, to be with another male, that, that infant will usually be killed because a male doesn't want to waste his time raising someone else's kid. He wants the female to breed with him. Um, during stable periods where, you know, we, we saw a lot of this in the 1990s and 2000s, infant mortality was about 25%. So 25% of, of infants wouldn't live to be three years old, which means that 75% of infants did. So, mm -hmm. Okay. So interesting. Can we talk a little bit? Let's. Can we go back to Diane Fossey's days really quick? Sure. Can we talk? She was a very controversial figure. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she. You know, I think anyone that goes and moves, you know, picks up and moves to Africa and lives in a very harsh, remote place for almost twenty years, um, you know, is going to have some, you know, eccentricities. To you know, so yes. Yeah, I just, I mean, you know, because there's stories, I mean, would she, I mean, because she had conflicts, correct, with the locals, obviously with the poachers, but I mean, can we go a little bit more into that? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think the thing to understand about Diane is that she really loved animals. I think she related better to animals than she did 
to people. And these gorillas were her family. You know, she got to know them as individuals. She watched them grow up. She spent, you know, days upon days with them. And when they started to be killed, when her favorite gorilla, Digit, was killed and his head was cut off and his hands were cut off, you know, I think it it really triggered in her a, a frustration that that protection wasn't happening. And so she, you know, formed the Digit Fund, which then later became the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, our organization. The name was changed in honor of her. And, you know, she started taking some pretty extreme measures to make sure that these animals didn't go extinct. And I think when you realize the stress that she was under and what she was experiencing, um, it makes her actions seem, you know, it puts them in perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How long, I mean, because it's just tragic, but with Digit, and Diane was tragically murdered. What, mm-hmm. what was, how long was that gap after, you know, from Digit to when she was murdered? Was it several years, months? It was about eight years. Eight years. So she yeah. was actively, okay, so she was actively, yeah. okay. Yeah. So Diane, you know, her original mission was to, to study them. She was hired by Louis Leakey, who also hired Jane Goodall to study chimps and Barute Galdegus to study um, orangutans. So her original mission was to go and study them as one of our closest, you know, living relatives to better understand human evolution. So that was what she was doing. But then as she was studying them, she was seeing, you know, that the what was happening all around her and that the, these animals were being decimated. And so then she really started the conservation side of her work um, to fund anti-poaching patrols and try and provide increased protection for these animals. So, um, yeah, it became a huge focus of her work. Mm-hmm. Was there a rivalry between her and Jane Goodall? That's a great question that I don't know the answer to, to be honest with you. I think they were probably both so remote, (laughs) you know, in these remote places in Africa before satellite phones, and, you know, they were just sending letters back and forth, and and they were probably just both very busy in in their own worlds. I have seen Jane Goodall say that, you know, that Diane faced incredibly difficult circumstances that Jane did not in terms of what was happening to the gorillas and poaching. And that, you know, that would have been a very hard situation to be in, which I thought was a really uh, nice recognition of what Diane, you know, the challenges that Diane faced. Yeah. And I was going to ask, cause I mean, cause she was controversial. She did, you know, you know, she was standing up for these gorillas. She was making a stance and which, you know, mm-hmm. um, I always wondered, like, if do you think if she was more passive with the locals, um, do you think she would still be alive today? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, she made she obviously made a lot of enemies um, in the process of doing her work, and she could still be alive, but maybe the gorillas wouldn't be. Um, you know, I think she felt like she had to take pretty aggressive. Um, Pretty a pretty aggressive approach, uh, given the the rates of decline and and killings that she was seeing. You know, if you think about the gorilla population being cut in more than half between when when um, George Schaller was there and soon after she started her work, that if that trajectory had continued, they really would have been extinct before the year 2000. So, mm-hmm. I think she, in her mind, the the the, the means uh, justified, or the end justified the means. Yeah, and I never certainly, really... Certainly, it's not the approach that, that conservationists take now, but, you know, we it's 50 years later, and we have a very different perspective than than I think was 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 
occurred then. Yeah, I've, I'm happy that you said that about Jane Goodall. I guess I never realized that Jane was in a complete different situation, you know? I mean, you know, with the chimpanzees and, you know, Tanzania and stuff. So that, that mm-hmm. is interesting. I'm happy she did recognize that. And yeah. is and Diane, she's buried next to Digit, her favorite gorilla. Is that correct? Yeah, she's buried up at Karasoki, up at the old research site, which, you know, it's it's not, doesn't exist anymore. It's just the graveyard and a few, you know, pieces of the old building. It's a very spiritual place. It's a lovely place to visit. And you can do that when you go to Rwanda. You can hike up to the old Karasoki. But now we, you know, since the 90s, we've operated out of um, facilities in town. And so go back and forth into the forest every day. We are not, we don't have a permanent presence in the forest anymore. Okay. If you could ask Diane Fossey one question, what would it be? Oh, gosh. You know, I've never really thought about that. Um, I might ask it, her, you know, what it was like to that first moment when she really felt accepted by the gorillas after so many months of, you know, trying to get them used to her and, and them running away or charging or whatnot, what it really felt like to be accepted by them and to know that she had accomplished that. Uh, I think that that's um, a really big, significant accomplishment to get another species to accept you, particularly one that has been heavily persecuted and so has no reason to trust people, um, that that must have been a, a pretty amazing feeling. And it, it took several months. Did you just say it take eight, eight months to get them habituated or how long did that process take? Uh, it really varied depending on the group. I don't know the exact time frame, but it's a long process to do that. Um, you know, and, and even when they might accept her when she was 50 yards away, it's different when you're, you know, to get closer and closer and get to the point where the gorillas, you know, are comfortable basically kind of having you at, in and amongst the group, which is what, you know, she was doing when she was studying them intensively. Great. Okay. And um, I'm going to end with this because you have some really, really exciting news, correct? with collaboration with the Ellen DeGeneres Fund? Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that we have, since the 90s, have operated, you know, outside the park. We have rented a house, and now we rent a small office building where our operations are headquartered. It's it's not purpose-built. So, for example, we have a converted office that is the lab where we do all of our, you know, laboratory work. It's too small. We're bursting at the seams. We literally hold meetings in the hallways and on the veranda um, because we just don't have enough space for everyone. We're about 30 minutes from the park, so we're far away from these communities um, that we work with on a daily basis to try and help improve their lives and educate them about the importance of the gorillas. So about a year, almost two years ago now, um, our board of directors was in Rwanda, and we made the commitment to build a permanent home for our work. Uh, We wanted to move back up next to the park and have a true campus where we could have proper educational facilities for all the educational work we do, real research facility with labs and enough office space, um, a public exhibit where people who are coming to see the gorillas um, or local communities can come in and really learn a lot more than what they might learn on their hike or in their classroom, dorms for students to stay in, housing for visiting researchers that are working with us. So we decided to move forward on this campus project And we're very lucky that around that time, um, the Ellen Fund was formed as a birthday present to to Ellen DeGeneres from her wife. And we're the first recipient of a grant from them to help us build this campus. So they are the lead donor. Um, We're still fundraising for it, but a lead donor to the campus that we're building now in Rwanda that we hope will open in early 2021. 
were you pinching yourself? Because I'm, I'm assuming they connect, they contacted you directly. Were you like, oh my god, this is amazing. <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, it was incredible. It was such a, you know, um, incredibly generous idea and gift from Portia, who took uh, Portia de Rossi, Ellen's wife, who took Ellen's love of animals, but also her real love of Diane Fossey. When Ellen was a child, she had read the National Geographic articles and was really inspired by Diane and what a trailblazer she was. And so to merge those two things and create this this organization that is contributing to wildlife conservation and is directly benefiting our organization through supporting, you know, us building our first permanent home, even though we've been in Rwanda for more than 50 years now. Wow, that's great. Okay, yeah. so when do you head back to go see the gorillas? I will be back in June. So in June? In just a couple months, yeah. And how yeah. long How long do you stay? That's my longer trip because I can bring, I have two young daughters, so they come with me. So I'm usually there for a month or so on the ground. Oh, wow. Um, so, that is yeah, it. Oh, man, they don't even know how lucky they are to have you as a mom. That is insane. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, I have one last question for you. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Okay, so you literally have a dream job. You do what a lot of people have on their animal bucket list. Do you have something that you, like an animal encounter that is on top of your bucket list that you have yet to accomplish or see? Huh, that's a great question. I, I don't think so because, you know, I think, I mean, I've been so lucky to spend time, a lot of time with animals and see um you know, I spent a lot of time in Kenya, Tanzania, and seen a lot of the animals that live in, in the savanna areas. I've been incredibly lucky to spend time with gorillas and chimpanzees, you know, maybe some of the Asian species because they're also under a lot of threat and would, would love to see more of them before they um, they may disappear. But, you know, to me, every any experience with an animal is incredible and you never know what you're going to get. And so I just try and take whatever opportunity I have and enjoy it for what it is. And sometimes you get great viewing and sometimes, you know, you don't. But what I love is that these are wild animals making their own decisions. And I'm just there to be a fly on the wall and observe them doing what they do, which it's a huge honor to be able to have that as part of my life. That's amazing. Are you, can you actually see chimpanzees in the park, the same park that the mountain gorillas are in? No, you can't. There are places you can see chimpanzees in Rwanda. Um, there's also a number of places you can see them in Uganda too. So I've seen them there. Okay. Wow. Thank you so much. Can you tell my listeners where they can find more information about this amazing you know, organization, the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund? Yeah, please come visit our website, which is gorillafund.org. And then we're really active on um, social media. So Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Instagram and Twitter, we're at Saving Gorillas which, with two Gs. And on Facebook, we're the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. And we do an, uh, a newsletter that you can sign up, an electronic newsletter. You can sign up on our website, which we do a couple times a month. And we give you lots of updates on what's happening with the gorilla groups. You know, as I mentioned, we're out there with them 365 days a year. So we're seeing, we're the eyes and the ears that are seeing what's happening. And we love to share that information with our followers and our supporters. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. And, you know, make sure you let us know when you get that bucket li list uh, trip schedule, because we'd, we'd love to host you either in our current facility or maybe if it's when the new campus is there you can come see um you know see our new digs and all the work that's happening to, I, to help people and save gorillas i would love to do that is there any way i could stretch out my experience to be longer than an hour or is it pretty strict <laughs> what yeah I, it's, it's strict which is a good thing for the gorillas you i guess you're right twice. there you, you go, go twice. 
Yeah. Sounds good. I always tell people to try and go twice if they can, because every visit is different. Every family of gorillas is different. The weather's different. It's a, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. So, you know, just the scenery and, you know, depending on what part of the park you're in, it looks very different from where you were the day before. So going twice, even though it's expensive, it's, it's an incredible thing to do. I always, if you've gone that far, you might as well go twice. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.